You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. The governor's announcement about the plan to relax additional COVID restrictions come uh, July 8th is welcome news to many. The visitor industry is adjusting to the pent-up demand for travel, and the latest numbers on occupancy rates are in at around 60%. The Hotel Workers Union, Local 5, expressed some frustration that housekeepers and other of its members are not being hired back as fast as it would like. We reached out to the head of a newly organized group called the Hawaii Hotel Alliance, headed by longtime hotelier Jerry Gibson. From June 15th through August 15th, we have a great amount of families traveling, obviously due to school breaks and that kind of thing. So for the last many years, probably 15, you know, summertime has just been our, our best part of the year, other than festive from December 22nd to the January 3rd. So, you know, we're excited that we're kind of in that zone right now. And uh, we have what I'm calling kind of a soft top. And what that mean is, means is we really have transient travel, mostly transient travel. We don't have any Asian business really to speak of. We don't have any group business to speak of, hardly anything at all. And very little uh, wholesale business. So. This is really pent up demand. People wanting to get out, people wanting to come to paradise, enjoy themselves a little, and, and, and kind of forget the last year. I think that's that's what it's all about, Jeff. Well, you know, we did talk to uh, one of the GMs from the neighbor islands who was saying that, gosh, they don't think there's gonna they're gonna see a lull. That they think that, that the rest of the year is just gonna be strong. Did you agree with that assessment? Well, I think it's gonna it's, it's gonna continue. I really believe that. I think I think uh, uh, that that person's assessment is astute. When we're really gonna find out that is probably the mid July towards the end of July. And see what the pace is for September, October, November. And that's going to be uh, interesting to see after school, you know, started again. And kids are back in school. After Labor Day, what are we really going to pick up? Because typically that's a portion of our convention business, particularly more on, on Oahu and a couple of the neighbor, neighbor islands. They do some pretty good convention business then as well. But we're not going to have that business this year. So it's going to be really interesting to see what that future pace looks like. And can you talk about the uh, employment picture? Because, you know, Local 5, you know, expressed some concern that a lot of the housekeepers aren't being brought back because a lot of the chains have opted not to clean the rooms every day. They're doing it like once a week. There seems to be a myriad of different things that some hotels are doing. But I think those that basically want to work at this point are employed. Um, I'm thinking through all the hotels that, that we have. There's only a few that aren't open at this point. I think the tougher thing is uh, opening up some of the food and beverage outlets. And I, what I'm finding is hotels are doing them really one by one, making sure that they have the occupancy to afford to be able to open them. And, and then gear up to that occupancy what they think they're going to have. But with the hotel scheduled right now, with the business at hand, I think we're going to have almost everybody back to work as long as all the restaurant outlets are going to be starting to be opened and uh, the occupancy there is there to dictate that we'll need those. And talk about this new uh, group that you have formed, this alliance. Yeah, we uh, we were started talking about Hawaii Hotel Alliance back in uh, October. And, you know... We were in the throes of uh, COVID, as you recall then. And, you know, we all felt, hey, we have a duty to get this going again. We have to, you know, and, and being, you know, one of the three largest economic providers in Hawaii, that being tourism, the military and construction, you know, we needed to get tourism going again. So we started, you know, loosely forming this group of hoteliers and owners. And, you know, our goal was to certainly begin to get the industry woken up again and start opening uh, the hotels, how we were going to open, how we would get things moving, reservation systems and everything, and really felt it was a duty to, to get this whole thing going. So finally, you know, in February, we incorporated a 501c nonprofit, and so we have a full board of hoteliers and, a, and ownership groups that are with us and you know we've 
had some very good success right at the beginning. We have out of uh, about 43,000 hotel rooms in Hawaii, we have about 29,000 with uh, Hawaii Hotel Alliance uh, right now. Um, and I think there's a, there's, there's a lot more reasons we actually did it other than just needing to get going. We needed to be more proactive with uh, legislation legislation and communicate with our legislators uh, better so that uh, so they could understand the business and what we needed to go through, what we needed, and how we could help Hawaii. And we, we're seeing also a sea change of uh, resident sentiment. And that is something that forensically all of us wanted to take a look back at and say, hey, how can we do better? How can we do better with, better with tourism everywhere? And certainly we don't have all the answers yet, but we're working towards that problem. And, uh, you know, we want to do right. and We want to be a, a great part of the uh, community. And uh, we, we want to make sure that economically and from a Ohana point of view that we all fit in together. There's about 200,000 people that are in the hospitality industry in Hawaii. And it's bigger than modern nuclear family at times four. That's about 800,000 people that are directly affected by tourism or somebody working in tourism. So that's a big part of the community, and we touch everybody. So it's important that we do a good job. So, Jerry, how different is this from, let's say, though, the, the lodging association? They perform kind of a different function. They do some great community work. I've been president of that organization before and have been in it for over 20 years. And they, you know, and they talk about, uh, you know, some legislation. So there is some overlap as well. But we are maniacal about, you know, speaking with our legislators, being ahead of the game on certain issues and that kind of thing. And we are a hotel group. They they serve the, the overall hospitality uh, group very well. But I think we get into this group, it's into the detail a lot. And for instance, right now, members of our group are working with at least two to three legislators a day and speaking with them and talking about our issues and, and seeing what we can do for the future and that kind of thing. So we're kind of idea-aiding, so to speak. And uh, we are um, also, um, you know, talking about uh, the issues that we have at the same time. So I think it's more of a detailed approach. That was Jerry Gibson, former uh, Hilton executive and now head of the newly created Hawaii Hotel Alliance. The group was formed to help kickstart our economy again as we move into this next phase of the pandemic. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today, we're remembering Robert Kikaula, the longtime local news and sports anchor. He died last Saturday at the age of 56. He was honored by Hawaii U.S. Representative Kai Kahele uh, in our nation's capital on the House floor yesterday. Robert is widely known as one of the best sportscasters in our state's history and beloved for his engaging personality. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what, what you know about some of his hobbies. Television aside, he was also a singer and a musician. He released three solo albums, the most recent being 1999's About Everyday People, which featured this song. In 
In addition to his music career, he also tried his hand at acting. Most recently, he had a role in the 2014 short film The Fishing Club along m- alongside noted Hawaiian musician artist uh, uh, Kaylee Rochelle. Keikala also appeared in 10 episodes of the short-lived 2004 Fox TV series North Shore, but he first appeared on screen as Sonny Kaulukukui in an ABC series that lasted 12 episodes in 1993. Be the first to tell us the name of the show by calling 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689, and we will send you our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. Questions surrounding another fat rail contract. That's what we're talking about for today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby joins us today. Hi, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. So, you know, we saw the flap with Colleen Hanabusa and the uh, uh, contract that was uh, offered her. But uh, your story is about another lobbyist. Uh, That's correct. So um, back in December, the Heart Board wanted to hire uh, a couple of consultants to help them with a few things, mostly related to securing more funding for the rail project, which, of course, has been uh, struggling financially. It's uh, way over budget, and it has a multi-billion dollar shortfall. And so uh, what they wanted to do is they wanted to hire um, lobbyists. One of them uh, happened to be former Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa, and the other was uh, Dennis Dwyer, who uh, works for William & Jensen, which is a Washington, D.C.-based law firm. Now, after they were awarded these contracts, which, of course, were worth up to uh, more than a million or roughly a million dollars each, I think Honobus's was about one million and Dwyer's was one point four million over the course of the life of the contract. Uh, a lot of questions were raised about how specifically Hart had chosen uh, both Honobusa and Dwyer. And the story that we published today focused mostly on Dwyer's contract and how it looked as if the fix was in to hire him and to skirt uh, competitive bidding requirements in order to make sure that Dwyer received this contract. And you were able to obtain some internal emails and other records uh, through a public records request that kind of detailed some of these interesting conversations back and forth by, by some of the heart officials. That's right. So what we had found after uh, was that heart officials really were working behind the scenes and talking to one another uh, early on, long before they decided to put either of these contracts, either for Hanabusa or Dwyer, out into the field so that other consultants uh, and companies could bid on them. And they were th- their discussions centered on how best to make sure that Hanabusa and Dwyer got these contracts um, and, and no one else. And so uh, when we got these emails, we... A lot of them focused on the Hanabusa contract, which, of course, uh, the former congresswoman, she gave up after a lot of public backlash. Um, but there were a handful of emails in, in the batch of records that we did receive from Hart that discussed Dwyer's contract. And, in fact, we saw that Hart's CEO and executive director, Lori Kahikina, um, over a month before the contract went out to bid, was describing it as, quote, Dennis's contract which, of course, raises a lot of questions about whether or not they were following proper state procurement code uh, when they were going out to bid for, uh, for, this, for this work that's being funded by taxpayer dollars. And with Colleen, uh, she was the only one who bid uh, on the contract, but there were two others uh, for the Dwyer contract. Uh, that's right. So uh, for Hanabusa's contract, 
the qualifications were written so narrowly that essentially she was probably one of the few people, if not the only person in Hawaii who could have qualified for that contract. In Dwyer's case, there were at least three other companies that had submitted proposals, and that's Denton's U.S., um, Strategies 360, and uh, another company, Holland and Knight, which is based in, uh, out of D.C. Now, all three of these firms have extremely qualified lobbyists on their payrolls, including people who have worked in Congress or for Congress um, and who have focused specifically on transit and rail and Honolulu Rail. For example, Strategies 360, the person who would have been leading the charge for them was uh, Andy Weiner, who is a former chief of staff to U.S. Senator Brian Schott, mm -hmm. who sits on the Senate Appropriations Committee that actually allocates funding to transportation projects. Yeah, and then Denton's, I know, just bought out uh, Alston, uh, Hunt, and Floyd and Ng. Uh, and uh, I'm not familiar with Holland and Knight, though. Holland and Knight is a D.C.-based firm that they focus a lot on transportation infrastructure. And, in fact, it's one of their uh, major, uh, major specialties is working in that zone. So it's not like these other bidders were completely unqualified. And really, you know, when, when I looked at some of the bidding documents that I obtained, uh, it also showed that Dwyer uh, of Williams and Jensen, he wasn't even the lowest bidder. Uh, that was actually Denton's who had offered to do all of this work for about half a million dollars less than Dwyer uh, had said he would do it for. And I know you had reached out to uh, Kaikina um, uh, and uh, the Hartford as well, but got uh, uh, no comment. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, we'll we'll uh, be looking for for more stories as this uh, this de this develops. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. And it, it's true. I mean, they didn't speak uh, for themselves, but we had their emails in which they did all the talking there. So thanks for thanks again for letting me talk about the story. All right, thanks so much, Nick. That was reporter Nick Groovy with today's reality check. Uh, head to civilbeat.org to read the story. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. On the next Fresh Air, an inside look at the early years of the CIA from journalist Scott Anderson. In his book, The Quiet Americans, he describes how, after the defeat of Nazi Germany, the agency's covert operations to overthrow elected governments damaged America's moral standing and earned the hatred of many in the developing world. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Time out. Positive reinforcement with gold stars, Cheerios, or M&Ms. Those ideas of behavioral modification help tremendously while raising my children. Bet you use them too. And the man we have to thank is none other than University of Hawaii professor, psychology professor Arthur Stotts. The longtime Kailua resident died recently, and Father's Day took on a different take for his family. They held a celebration of his life on Sunday. We talked to his children, Dr. Jenny Kelly, a child psychiatrist who is the big sister in the family, and her younger brother, Peter Stotts, uh, is also a doctor. He was with John Hopkins and now has a practice in Florida. We caught up with them coming off the memorial service that was held this past Sunday. We were very fortunate to be able to hold a celebration of life for our dad, especially in this era of COVID. Uh, we had a very small private uh, celebration with just his closest friends, a few colleagues, and a few family members. So, but we were very, very fortunate to be able to do that. And Peter, you flew in from the mainland to be here this weekend. What was on your mind? You know, Dad was, you know, a super guy. Dad did make great contributions to me personally, to our family, to the world through his work. And um, I was just thrilled to be able to celebrate his life 
with his close family and friends, as Benny said, and talk about, you know, how he impacted so many people. Well, I have to say, I used that timeout concept <laughs> many times, you know, raising my kids. And I, don't, I just don't know anyone who hasn't used that timeout behavior modification because it works. Yeah, it, it definitely works. And what people don't realize about it is that he really did this with an intention of improving love between parents and children rather than create an antagonistic relationship with, you know, a belt or corporal punishment. This simply removed really the negative aspects, much of the negative aspects, and allowed to improve the bond between a parent and a child while providing a very good disciplinary tool. You know, when I was growing up, my dad and I would travel to and from the tennis courts all the time in his car. And the 20 minutes it took to get to the tennis courts, we would spend chatting constantly about human behavior. Believe it or not, that's what we talked about. We talked about how people learn to be the way that they are. And as a result, I think, of all of those in-depth conversations, I ended up becoming a child and adolescent psychiatrist. What a wonderful memory you have early on, you know, your dad nurturing that part of you. Yes, we, we really, I always felt when I was growing up, believe it or not, that he was my best friend. He was really a great dad. I don't know also if you know, but both of our parents were psychologists. And people would often ask me when I was a kid, what's it like? Do your parents psychoanalyze you? And um, I would always say, you know, if they are, I can't tell because they were really <laughs> great parents. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> And Peter, you know, I don't know, you know, as you were thinking about your dad's life and his contribution to his community and the world, really, I don't know, what are, what are some of the stories that were shared? Well, we, you know, talked a, a bit about his work where a number of esteemed psychologists talked about the contributions that dad made toward the field of behaviorism and was really one of the giants in the field. Uh, he was one of the original guys that came up with the ideas that predated what we talk about today as cognitive behavioral psychology. Of course, Time Out is a household name at this time, but he also developed things like token economies, which people use the five stars and you get a toy, uh, very commonly used as a positive reinforcement technique for early childhood development. But as a dad, <laughs> Jenny just said that she was his best friend and i think my thought of my dad is the best friend to me too uh and he was a coach he was a best friend he was a mentor and then when i started at johns hopkins i was creating my own pathway as well uh in the work that i was doing and dad became a mentor and colleague in writing papers together on things that i was interested in so I had a really very special relationship with my dad that spanned, uh, for me, 58 years. Wow. Well, you're both very fortunate. And then uh, I, I'm sure you had, you know, you were able to then to, to use the timeout concept and the uh, positive reinforcement with your children. Yes. My kids don't know how good they had it by getting timeouts instead of <laughs> <laughs> the other strategies that predated the timeout. Dad actually got an... Um, uh, recognition from this from Child Magazine back in, I think it was 2006, as one of 20 people who changed childhood with the invention of Time Out. And did you really say that your sister behaved so badly that your father had to invent these concepts? I said that to her, but I haven't said it elsewhere. <laughs> well, I read it somewhere. <laughs> Jenny, do you have any other stories to share um, just, you know, for folks that knew your dad or, or, uh, or, or maybe didn't? Uh, my husband and I used Time Out with our own two children, and that worked very well. And then we were very gratified to have our daughter and son-in-law use Time Out with our two granddaughters. And, and it's been really great to see it work so well with them as well. And so what's it like when you uh, hear people thank you for what your father did, uh, you know, because I'm sure you've just had an outpouring from the community. The, the funny thing is that most people are surprised to learn that Time Out was originated by our very own University of Hawaii professor. 
and uh, people just don't know about it. So that's been really nice that he's gotten more recognition in the last few months. And you folks have set up something with the University of Hawaii Foundation in his honor? Yeah, the University of Hawaii is interested in remembering Dad with some kind of permanent memorial that will be going at UH, and we're still working through exactly what that means right now. I did talk to the head of a new doctorate program in psychology over at Hawaii Pacific University, and he was one of your dad's students. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so, you know, I I think, you know, like you said, uh, you know, folks may not know his contribution, but certainly, you know, he's made his mark on on young minds at the university who have just gone on uh, to continue his good work. Yeah, well, that's wonderful to hear. Dad had a lot of graduate students around the world, literally around the world, where he influenced psychologists in Spain and Canada and uh, uh, all over. Really, I know a number of his uh, former colleagues and students, and he had a profound impact. But what people sometimes lose is he was kind of bigger than life in some ways. He was a great athlete, surfer first, then tennis and golf. When he got a little bit too weak to play tennis, he picked up golf. He is a great friend to so many different people and um, was loved by just a lot of different people. And so you mentioned that your mother also was a psychologist. Gosh, so how, you know, how did that work? <laughs> so mom was not um, in academia when in Hawaii. In Hawaii, she had a private practice and really saw hundreds of patients. She saw mostly adults, but some teenagers. And she also took care of couples, did some couples therapy. But she really helped a lot of people. She was a wonderful psychologist. Anything else you want to add? You know, I think he's really impacted billions of people. When you think about that 77% of households today uh, in the United States are using time out as part of what they do, and then you think about people in many other industrialized countries and even developing countries that are using this technique, it really is a rare man that's been able to impact so many with his work. I was always incredibly proud of him and the work that he did and how he was doing things for the right reasons to try to improve improve life around the, around the globe. Well, I'm really very grateful to Dad for providing me the framework to understand how behavior gets learned from the earliest of ages. And I really attribute that understanding to all of those conversations I had with my dad. So even before I became a psychiatrist, I think I had the right understanding of how human development and learning takes place. And do you have any stories you can share with us about your own kids? And maybe when you use that positive reinforcement or the timeout, you know, uh, that you said, ah, thank you, Dad. (laughs) Well, there are just way too many to mention because (laughs) the kids are constantly put in timeout. You know, young children are always experimenting with how to get attention and you just want them to uh, get attention for doing the right sorts of things not the wrong sorts of things so we use it all the time one thing that comes to my mind is actually becoming completely overwhelmed myself one time and putting myself in timeout as an adult and that was very useful (laughs) time to calm myself down as a young mom so I totally recommend it for adults as well. Okay. And and you, yeah, so you know when you need a timeout. <laughs> Peter, have you used that? Have you done that yourself? Uh, constantly, constantly. Um, I would just, you know, add to what Jenny uh, said. You know, there are some people out there who say timeout doesn't work. And for the naysayers, all I can say is you're not doing it right. It's like gravity. <laughs> there are certain principles of human behavior and this is one of them. If you do it correctly, it will work. Well, we have your dad to thank for this. And uh, we're, we're glad that you were able to be home to celebrate his life this weekend. And thank you so much for, for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Appreciate doing the story. Catherine, we really appreciate it. That was Dr. Peter Stotts and Dr. Jenny Kelly talking about their dad and his contribution to early childhood development as we come off Father's Day weekend. UH psychology professor Arthur Stotts died at age 97 at his home in Kailua.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Linda Graham, author of Bouncing Back. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about rewiring your brain for resilience and well-being. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, committed to bringing people together to build homes. Learn more about volunteering on Facebook, on Instagram, at Honolulu Habitat, or on the web at honoluluhabitat.org. Summer means sunshine, sweet treats, and coral spawning. That's right. Between April and September, spawning events are occurring along our coral reefs, often triggered by a full moon like the one we had last night. New research this week from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute takes a closer look at this phenomenon. And here's the kicker. It's good news. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with the postdoc researcher Mike Henley about the findings. We found that years after the consecutive bleaching events in Hawaii and Kaneohe Bay, the bleaching events of 2014 and 2015, the blue rice corals of reproduction in particular, its sperm motility was far superior, around 80-90% consistently than that of the brown rice coral, its cousin counterpart. The brown rice coral had years of very high motility, 80-90%, and then after bleaching it had dropped down to 40-50% and was still maintained at very low level years after bleaching. And what kind of rates of sperm motility would a coral species need in order to sustain itself in a reef? Oh, that's a fine question. And if you can answer that one, you're going to help us out a lot. Honestly, we don't know. That's one of the things we are looking at is at what rate, you know, if you drop from 90% to 80%, do you see a decrease in fertilization? If you drop from say 90% down to 50%, would you then see a decrease in fertilization? Or is it, at what point is, is an impact of motility a significant loss of fertilization? And right now we just don't know. And then the other question that I have that came to mind initially when I read the briefing, I understand that coral reefs are one of our most diverse ecosystems. And the blue rice coral, Hawaiian blue rice coral specifically, is presenting a particular advantage comparatively to, for instance, the brown rice coral. Can a reef survive? I'm asking big questions, Mike, so <laughs> I appreciate your patience. But can a reef survive if it is dependent on one more adaptive species? Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, that's one of those big questions that, again, I'm afraid we we just don't know the exact answer to that question. I'm inclined to say if, it, if it's dependent on just one species of coral, unlikely. I mean, because that's uh, part of the reason for their success is their diversity, right? It's both the species diversity and their their genetic diversity is is both key to the persistence into you know into the future. So, the more reliant you are on just one single species, if something happens to that species, it tends to have cascading effects throughout the rest of the ecosystem. But the other species either you know, directly or indirectly depend upon it. I don't want to minimize what you've discovered because it is exciting and we don't get many wins when we're studying <laughs> coral. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to ask as someone who is devoting many years to the, the study of this particular ecosystem, would you say you have more good days or bad days? Good days or bad days? Um, you know, I... Yeah, most days are, uh, most days are good. 
you know, we, I mean, obviously there's the times you see a coral dying in particular. I can think of one individual coral that I followed over a couple of years and it was a big blue rice coral. I mean, it was probably as, as long as, as like three people are tall. And a few years ago in 2019, I watched it. Uh, we had a little sort of another miniature warming event and I watched it over the, over the course of a couple months, just slowly proceed and die back and it absolutely you know it absolutely it did kill me to watch it you know it was one i've been following and, and been studying for the last several years and so that you know things like that hit you pretty hard but then you see you know things that you see others that you know the next time we have a bleaching event there it's it's not as bad as it was before and so it gives you a little bit of hope that there is some you know, either, you know, acclimatization or adaptation happening that these things are going to persist. And, and in Kaneohe Bay in particular, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly warmer and slightly, slightly more acidic than the surrounding oceans. And a lot of projections say that corals can't live in the current conditions that we find in Kaneohe Bay or close to it. And yet in Kaneohe, there's, there's the coral coverage abounds. And so, it's things like that where that give me hope that, you know, there is some resiliency happening and that, you know, every time I see another restoration project starting up, you know, I, I, I hope for the best for them that they can, can make a positive impact. Overall, there are more good days than bad. It's, it's easy to have the bad days stick out and you try not to do that. It is both the greatest joy of my life to get to talk to people who are doing work. <laughs> Um, in this field and a continual punch in the gut because species that I didn't even know about are already gone. Yep. And so yeah. I, I wanted to talk to you um, in particular because you do are presenting this bright spot, but I also wanted to understand that in the context of the fragility of this ecosystem. So, yeah. And the blue corals in particular seem to be you know, in terms of, of coral species, they are particularly sensitive to warming they are one of the ones that will bleach first when there's warming, you know? So they're sort of the canaries in the coal mine, so to speak of, you know, indicators of like, oh, warming. Well, okay, the blue ones are bleaching first. And then, you know, sometimes if, it, if the warming persists, the other ones will follow, or, you know, if it doesn't last too long, then they won't, but they are the ones that are most sensitive, which is, you know, so strange that their, their reproduction might be, you know, more resilient? And is there something to the UV blocker that they have? I didn't discover the UV compound that was discovered by a colleague here at HIMB as well. But when she discovered those, I was like, oh, I wonder if, you know, if they bleach and they keep that UV blocker, is that what might be helping the reproduction, right? And so if, if the ones that, you know, obviously some might die off, but the ones that stick around, might they be able to then persist and pass on those, you know, those genes to the next ones? And, and is that gonna help them you know, fight through? I don't know, that's where the next big question I wanna answer is, and what I wanna actually work on now is if those blue corals, if they do bleach, do they keep that UV protection? And does that help sustain their reproduction to the next season? So that's actually the project that I'm getting started right now, actually, is looking at that very question. So, it, and that's kind of how science is, you know, you answer one question, it's like a hydra, right? You answer one question and two more pop up. <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> my, yeah. my deadline is, you know, the next day. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I can't imagine devoting yeah. five years of your life to one question. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I didn't even plan for it. I came into graduate school, wanted to study something else. I was interested in hybridization and, and coral reproduction and hybridization. And I kind of just stumbled upon this, this weird blue coral that we didn't know much about reproduction. And the other part of the story is that it, it's spawning time as most corals, uh, like the brown rice coral, it's cousin species, is it, going to spawn here in, in, in a couple of weeks, um, around July 9th or so. And it's in, tends to spawn, you know, once or twice per summer around the new moon, pretty like clockwork, pretty regular, and everyone works on that. Not too many people work on the blue coral, and when I was just doing it, it kept me here literally every night through the summer months for 2018 and 19 from June, July and August into September because it spreads its reproduction out over this long extended window. So mm. that's the actual next paper I've got coming down the pipeline is the other piece from that research that I'm waiting on for it to be published is that its reproduction instead of being, instead of being, uh, uh, you know, peaking at a couple of nights per year in the summertime, 
it seems to extend it out over three, maybe four months. And so is this yet another way that it is able to, I guess, guard its reproduction against some, you know, uh, environmental uh, perturbations? Because if it's not locked in those one a couple nights, maybe some of the gamete, some of those egg or sperm or whatever was damaged at the beginning, but then the, the ones they make later are not. So I, I don't know. These are all these, you know, weird questions we want to try to look into. Mm. Um, that's part of that. As, as someone who works with these species, are there other, I mean, the classic ones don't stand on the coral where reef safe sunscreen, but are there other behaviors that we can adopt so that we live more communally with our reefs? Absolutely. And here, here in Hawaii, especially, I, I found that people really understand the Malka to Makai concept, right? What you do on the land, all the rivers run downstream and water is life. And so anything that we're doing on land is eventually going to end up in the storm drain that's eventually going to flow down to the reef and can impact the corals in ways that we might not even understand yet. And so I always think about any small impacts that we could do to improve water quality. Think about uh, a, a coral reef is like the analogy I use is like the classic Jenga game, right? Where you pull the blocks out and you put them on, right? Imagine the blocks in the Jenga column. And those are all sort of the species that make up that ecosystem, right? And so you take one out, you've now removed a piece out of that ecosystem, right? And now, we're, and so in the, in the game, right, you take that block and put it on top. Now imagine the block you're putting on top is some sort of pressure that we're pushing down on those ecosystems, right? So eventually, not only are you moving pieces out of that ecosystem and it's becoming unstable, it becomes a wobbly, but the more pressures you pile on top, think of that as climate change, think of that as uh, pollution, think of that as uh, over harvesting too many of the fish that want to graze and eat the algae, right? All those pressures pushing down, eventually what happens? Boom, it collapses. And so any of those environmental pressures that we can take off of the top of that ecosystem block, the more stable it can be, even if we might lose some pieces out of that column of species that might go anyway, regardless of our efforts. That was Mike Henley, postdoctoral researcher with the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. He spoke with the conversation's Savannah Harriman Pope. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. When you're out and about, stay connected on the HPR mobile app. Whether you're on a run, walking the dog, or just doing errands, take Hawaii Public Radio with you. Stream the latest news and talk from HPR One, or experience the soothing calm of classical music on HPR Two. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Available 24-7 right from your smartphone. Available on the App Store or on Google Play. Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, which helped develop the city and county's COVID-19 testing lab at Honolulu Airport and now at Hawaiian Monarch Hotel in Waikiki. Walk-ins welcome daily, kidneyhi.org. Today on the Backyard Quiz, we remember longtime local anchor Robert Kikaula, who died unexpectedly on Saturday. He got his first job in television at KGMB's Weekend Sports Producer in 1987, then spent the majority of his career as the sports anchor at KITV. He was a former colleague. My desk was right next to his edit bay for many decades. And while KITV is where he got the most screen time, he also appeared on camera as an actor. His first role was as Sonny Ka'ulu Kukui, a reoccurring character on a 90s ABC drama that centered on a family who relocated from Connecticut to Honolulu after the sudden death of the mother. The show starred Timothy Busfield, best known for the series 30-something, and it helped launch the careers of Jennifer Love Hewitt and Seth Green. Here's a clip of Robert on the show. Pigeon's so weird. What is it anyway? Like pig Latin or something? Well, all kinds of people came here a long time ago from all over the place, and nobody talked the same language. 
so they have to make up one of their own. We have a little English here, a little Portuguese there, some Japanese, some Pake, which is Chinese, all chopped to it so everybody can understand. And the name of the show and the answer for today's Backyard Quiz is Birds of Paradise. Congratulations to Jerry from Kaneohe. You got it right. Jerry shares it. He loved that show, Birds of Paradise. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. morning we talk caring culture hpr's arts and culture reporter noe tanagawa joins us in studio this morning so noe share with our listeners what's this all about right caring culture is back a lot of people have found that it's just been the micronesian festival for the rest of the community you know and last year of course hiatus with 2020 but it's back there at the honolulu museum three-part series tomorrow's the second one and it's the voice of our youth. It's going to highlight young Micronesian poets and their approach. It's pretty cool, Catherine. Okay, Ethan Ifit Hapi Cruz uh, was born, raised Makaha. He's a rising junior at Waianae High. He's going to be contributing tomorrow. Rosita Sampson Keller, she's an educator, storyteller. She's a mother originally from Pingalap. Atoll there in Ponape. She's teaching currently at Northern Marianas College, but um, she's going to also be contributing. I was hearing about this from Mary Hattori, Interim Director of the Pacific Islands Development Program there at the East-West Center, and she's helping to organize this series. She says, you know, the perspectives we're going to hear tomorrow are going to be eye-opening, even though they're coming from right here in our own community. Some of these voices have not been heard much. You know, Carol Ann Carl is a she graduated with a degree in biochemistry from the University of Hawaii, worked as a grants specialist at Kokua Kalihi Valley, never really thought of herself as a poet. She's now teaching workshops in Kalihi for youth using poetry. We um, taught a workshop for the Hawaii Council for the Humanities around civic engagement and electoral participation. So we decided that poetry can be a form of civic engagement. She has one poem um, that, that's really compelling uh, around the shooting of I Remember Saikap, Punahele. He has been running rap workshops for youth. And in fact, I Remember Saikap was one of his students. He was quite moved by the shooting and then all of the negative comments he's been seeing in social media. He has stepped up and has started to speak out against that. Ifit does the same. I mean, you can, can really speak to people's humanity I think, more effectively with poetry. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. And how Tori says that poetry and the spoken word are really coming naturally to an oral and storytelling culture. And if you've ever read Literatures of Micronesia, you might agree it's a super collection that came out a couple of years ago. But Hattori mentioned Carol Ann Carl, the, you know, the biochem major. Um, excerpts from her poem, Why It Matters. I thought we, we should hear it. And this poem deals with the killing of a 16-year-old boy by the Honolulu Police Department this past spring. Why is a 16-year-old child dead? Why was he shot by a public servant sworn to protect? Because he was a criminal because he was a young Micronesian Chukis boy caught in the liminal, misplaced, displaced identity, never Micronesian enough, never Hawaiian enough, never American enough, never colonized or labeled enough, recenter this boy's diasporic identity, displace his self-hate, teach him that as the owner of a Chukis Micronesian migrant identity, his existence as the descendant of a navigating society is the extensive culmination of a legacy 
of people crossing oceans to build relationship and connection. Caroline Carl, one of the poets who will be performing tomorrow in the Caring Cultures series. Wow, that powerful. It really is. You know, they've, she's taken the time to speak out. She, they, she's using a lot of smarts as well as audiovisual production methods to get the message out. It's just great to be hearing from this part of the community. And so I really want to say tomorrow, Carrying Culture Micronesia, the second in a three-part series happens at 5 o'clock. It's a webinar. You just jump on there at honolulumuseum.org. Um, it's going to be so great. Voices of our youth, poets from the Micronesian community. And this is the, the production between East West Center and the Honolulu Museum of, Ar of Art? Right, exactly. You know, but it, it, the Micronesian community has just been coming together, according to Mary. Through this COVID pandemic, it, they really came together in religious groups and community groups and cultural and just feel so much stronger coming through the pandemic. They staged an incredible festival at the Bishop Museum just a yes. couple of weeks ago, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, they're coming on, and, and we've we really got to take notice, and tomorrow's going to be a great day to yeah, do it. Yeah, and kudos to the East West Center for uh, constantly uh, featuring the culture of this area so that uh, we all can learn. Oh, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, Nui. Thank you. Oh, happy Aloha Friday. Yes. We have been talking to uh, Noe Tanigawa. Find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that wraps it up for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we check back in with Hearts Lori Kaikina about the timetable going forward with the rail project. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and our intern is Matt Fairfax. Our backyard theme quiz written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.